You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 5 through 8. My name's Jamin. If you're new here, welcome. We're grateful that you're visiting. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. That's great. All I have to do is beg for it, and then it happens. Uh, This is our third week in the book of James. A little bit of a recap. James is the younger brother of Jesus. He writes this letter to Christians that he pastored, uh, and the letter is filled with words from his brother. There's more overlap between the teachings of Jesus in the book of James than any other New Testament epistle. Uh, It's also written in the voice of wisdom. And so it's been called the wisdom literature of the New Testament. It just means it's full of metaphor and punchy imperatives and it sounds uh, like wisdom. And the purpose of the letter is to make us whole, that, that we would not be divided or fractured or compartmentalized people, but we would be whole in and through Jesus. Verse five says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Uh, We don't talk much about wisdom around here, so we're gonna talk about wisdom again this morning. A book came out last year called The Great Dechurching. Something's happening in this country right now that I'm sure most of us are aware of, but uh, people are leaving church and and not going back. Uh, Starting in the 90s, people started leaving church, and since the 90s, millions of people have left church. Uh, right now, there are 40 million adults in America that are de-churched. What it means to be de-churched is you, at some point in your life, you attended at least once a month, uh, and now you attend less than once a year. Uh, the book calls it the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. So in the last 25 years, more people have left church in the last 25 years than people became Christians during the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and Billy Graham Crusades combined. It's sobering. The book, The Great Dechurching, sets out to answer the question, what is happening? Why are people leaving? And so they... Uh, survey a bunch of people and they do a bunch of research and they offer a, a few different answers. There's no one answer for why people are leaving. In fact, there's no one group of people that are leaving. There's, there's at least four groups of people, according to the book, that are leaving. The largest group is what they called cultural Christians and they're people who, who left because um, they moved cities and just never found a new church um, or church became inconvenient for some reason or something just very neutral happened in their life like their kids' soccer team started playing on Sundays and then when the season's over, they just never went back to church. Uh, Others left because of deeper issues like church scandals or abuse or the way churches responded to cultural issues. And everyone left. What I mean by that is all kinds of people left, men and women, left and right across all different denominations. So you you probably know de-churched people in your life, multiple maybe de-churched people in your life. It's your neighbors, it's family members, it's uh, adult children, it's your parents or something like that. They used to attend and now they just don't really attend at all. Maybe someone in here, maybe you're on the cusp of of de-churching for one reason or another. Maybe you're here and you're giving church a try again. You haven't been in a while. Uh, There's so much worth considering around all this because it's a really um, important moment for us as Christians living in this time. So we'll probably come back to this uh, often um, to consider. But here's why I'm bringing it up this morning. 
towards the end of the book, the authors start to, to offer a way forward. So they're writing to Christians, they're writing to, to Christian leaders, they're writing to pastors. What can churches do? How can churches respond? And in all the book, this is what I found to, to just be the most sobering part. They said churches are in the middle of a crisis of spiritual formation, partly because churches are losing their influence in people's lives, but not losing their influence in the lives of people who left. They're losing their influence in the, in the lives of those who still attend and who still belong. Here's how they described it. We live in an attention economy where we consume information from various places at all times. And so even for those who are really faithful in church, the church just cannot compete with everything else that vies for our attention and gets our attention throughout the week. And so they describe the life of this fictitious person named Susan, to make the point. It's hypothetical. If your name is Susan, it's just a coincidence. It says this, Susan, who is churched and who really likes her pastor... Thank you, Susan. And makes sure she never misses his 30-minute, no comment, weekly sermon. Let's say Susan also attends a small group for 90 minutes a week. Outside of church, Susan's weekly information diet includes 14 hours of cable news, 14 hours of social media scrolling, 7 hours of web surfing, 10 hours of streaming content, 2 hours of podcasts, an hour of YouTube, three hours of radio, and two hours of book. When you compare Susan's two church-centric time blocks with the sheer volume of other things forming and shaping her throughout the week, the time in church pales in comparison. Even if she considers her pastor's sermons in her small group at the highest level of influence in her life, her church time is still completely overshadowed by the rest of her information diet. The crisis of spiritual formation is unavoidable. Okay, hear me. Nothing wrong inherently with any of those things. Nothing inherently evil about social media, lots of incredible podcasts. There's lots of shows worth watching. It's not about any of those things in themselves. It's about what has our attention. Because all of that, none of that's, friends, none of that's neutral. All of that is doing something. And it names, like, what has our attention shapes us. What has our attention forms us. What has our attention has our heart. And so the book that's mostly about all the people who left church stops and asks, what's happening to all the people who still go to church? And it names the reality that in a world with so much access, where we are so influenced by so many voices and we're stimulated by so many experiences, the church's influence is diminishing in people's lives. If you just take, think about your life, if you just take the sheer amount of hours that most people spend to attend church, at church, around Christians in a church context, and compare it with the amount of hours spent consuming things, listening to voices that are not explicitly Christian, the church is, even this church's influence in your life is just marginal. It's marginal. If there's not something beyond Sunday, this isn't gonna work. Two hours a week, if we could say that, Two hours a week cannot compete with the shaping, forming, attention-grabbing influence that fills our lives from Monday to Saturday. And here's why it matters. If Jesus only has our attention for a fraction of our week, we shouldn't expect to look like him with more than a fraction of our life. Remember, friends, the goal of the church is not getting people to attend. The goal is lives transformed by the gospel of King Jesus. 
We're a large and growing church. And in, in the landscape of America right now, uh, that's an anomaly. Many churches are closing their doors, which is really sad. We are adding more chairs, which is a gift. And it's just not what it's about. At least it's not what matters most. So the prayer is not and has never been, God, fill our building. The prayer is, God, change our lives. The prayer is not, God, we don't want to lose people. The prayer is, God, we don't want to lose you. We don't want to lose your presence. We're not here because we don't want to be like the people who don't go to church. We're here because by the grace of God, we're not who we used to be. And by the grace of God, we're becoming who we are always meant to be. And so the hope is that the collective heart of this place, anyone who calls this place home, the collective heart would be, Jesus, you are worth far more than a fraction of our time. You're worth all that we've got, all that we got. Okay, so what's the answer? We're trying to be a church of people who follow Jesus with all we've got at a time where there's this crisis of spiritual formation. So many things can steal my attention and your attention and distort our formation. And here's what the need, the need is, is, is more of our life and more of our thought and more of our time towards Jesus. Two hours a week is just not enough. So what's the answer? 16 hours of church, seven days a week? No, Bleeker would quit. And then I, I just wouldn't want to come. Um, what's the answer? Retreat from the world? Throw your iPhone in the trash, only watch Christian movies. No, most of the, no. <laughs> What's the answer? Uh, there would be a good and right way to spend the next 25 minutes of our time because um, there's a very practical answer that's just worth considering. And it sounds like building time with the Lord and his people into your days, like a rule of life or a quiet time or spiritual disciplines, whatever you want to call it. And then being a part of, of, of ministries here, home groups and Bible classes and steps and all that, all those things will help turn our attention to Jesus in ways that form us. Many of you have that. All of us need that. But then there's an answer underneath all of it. It's, it's the heart of it. Because there's a, there's a way to be involved in all those things and still actually miss the point. And it's the invitation we find in our passage. There's three movements. We need wisdom. God gives wisdom. Ask in faith. We need wisdom. God gives wisdom. Ask in faith. Um, a generation of Christians, I believe this with my whole heart. A generation of Christians who know their need for wisdom and know that, that what they need only comes from God. That kind of heart will over and again seek God. Let me say it another way. The heart that desires the wisdom of God that is found only in the person of Jesus will seek him and pay attention to him beyond Sunday. We need wisdom. God gives wisdom. Ask in faith. We need wisdom. Look at verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Uh, the verse is kind of a test. If any of you lacks wisdom, well, who lacks wisdom? Everybody. Well, then why didn't you just say that? Hey, you all lack wisdom. Well, because knowing you need it is the first step towards it. And you have to self-select into that. Like, it would be like me saying this. Um, hey, you know, nod your head if you agree that everybody needs prayer in their life. We sit here and we nod our head. Yeah, everyone needs prayer. Versus if I said, if anyone needs prayer, stand up and come down to the front for prayer. That's different. Um, you know, I can generally sit and nod. Yeah, everybody needs this. That's different than I need this and that need has moved me. It got me on my feet. And that's the wisdom invitation. It's if any of you lacks wisdom, oh yeah, well, we all do. No, 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 no. Have you felt that lack to the point of seeking it, moving towards it, getting off of your feet? 
James is talking about wisdom as a Jewish man. The only Bible James had when he's writing the letter of James is the Old Testament, and that Bible had at least four books committed entirely to wisdom. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who had also read those wisdom books. And so he uses the wisdom in, in, in his letter, and wisdom is a loaded term for him and his audience in the best way. Here's what James knew about wisdom. Proverbs 8, wisdom speaks, lady wisdom, and she says, for the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But the one who misses me harms himself. All who hate me love death. There's a way to life and favor and flourishing with the Lord. Then there's a way to self-injury and making such a mess of my life. It's as if I love death. And the difference is those who find wisdom and those who miss it. And you miss it by thinking you don't need it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. So there are those who trust in the Lord and fear the Lord and listen to wisdom and walk in wisdom. And then there are those who lean on their own understanding and are wise in their own eyes and trust their own mind. There's the wise and there's the fool. There's wisdom that leads to life and flourishing and folly that leads to hurting others and yourself and ultimately death. So the stakes are really high. It's easy when we think of wisdom to think wisdom is about having the right answers. If I called you and said, gosh, I'm just in a place where I need wisdom, you might think I'm trying to make a tough decision or something, that I need wisdom to know what to do. And wisdom is that, but it's so much deeper than that. If wisdom was all about getting information, the Bible wouldn't talk about it as life and death. Whoever finds me finds life. Whoever hates me loves death. So it has to be more than that. And look, we all know people who have lots of answers, but it hasn't made them wise. We all know people who are good with information, but bad at life. We all know people who have hundreds of books and zero healthy relationships. The fool is not uninformed. The fool is unchanged by what they know. So wisdom goes beyond what you know to deal with who you are. It's deep and it's broad. Wisdom cares about every part of my life and every part of your life. It's family and sin and time and money and gifts and emotions and how we handle envy and anger and how we handle grief and how we handle words. It's all of life. So how we've defined it tries to honor the scope of it, the breadth and depth of it. Wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. Let me say it a little bit differently. Wisdom is a way of being in God's world that gives us the internal resources we need to live well in God's world. It's not just intellectual answers, but it's spiritual, moral, internal resources needed to face my life. One of my biggest fears is being less than what my life requires. Not afraid of what might happen, although that's there, but lacking the resources internally that my life demands around me. And I'm not talking material. I mean this, I mean this church that I love. This church requires of me a level of character and leadership. Uh, my home, wife and kids, requires of me a level of a presence and a Christ-likeness and an emotional health. 
My community of friends requires of me a listening ear and faithful words and, and trustworthiness. And I don't want, gosh, I don't want to possess less than what all of that needs. I don't. I don't want the me that is to be different than the me my life needs me to be. And I'm not talking about other people's unrealistic expectations of me. I'm not talking about trying to be perfect. I'm talking about as a follower of Jesus, loved, forgiven, accepted, already enough in the eyes of God. I'm talking about being faithful with where God has me and what God has entrusted to me. I don't want to waste my life. I I, I want to live a life of consequence that honors God and loves others in a life that by God's grace matters in this world. And look, the same is true for you. If we don't pay attention here, none of this will matter. Your job, your family, your circumstance, your children, your friends, your marriage, your outer life makes demands on you that your inner life needs the resources to meet. And the degree to which you live well is tied to whether who you are is who your life needs you to be. Are you with me? Here's the spoiler. My fear has come true. It's just perpetually come true. The outer life requires more than what the inner life has to offer. There is a gap. A gap between the me that is and the me my life needs me to be. Here, pastor of this church, at home, husband and father, in community, as a friend. Again, I'm not talking about trying to be perfect or please everyone or struggling to be enough. I'm talking about an honest gap. There's a knowledge gap. There's a character gap. There's a capacity gap. I perpetually come to the end of what I have to offer and discover more is needed. There's the Jamin that is, then there's the Jamin that wants to live faithfully and finish well and, and die with my integrity intact, and there's a gap. And it exists in all of our lives. Goodness. If you don't feel it, it's simply because you haven't come to the end of yourself yet, but you will. Happy Sunday. You will. Many in the room could describe it as this, what uh, some sort of season of suffering has exposed the gap. This pain is requiring more of me than what I have to give. Um, my role as a mom, my role as a dad has exposed that gap. Some challenge in my career, some disappointment in my career, my marriage that's not going well or that I have hopes for, the rapidly changing world that I'm trying to figure out how to live in, my relationship with God that feels stale, some part of your life making demands of you that you don't have the knowledge, character, healing, or spiritual maturity to meet. And here's what you could do. You could fake it. That's pretty popular around this part of the world. You could pretend you have it all together, try and bridge the gap by hiding it under a fake smile and some sort of cheap performance. Here's what you could do. You could blame people and things. You can try and bridge the gap by shifting blame. Here's what you could do. You could just escape into things that numb. Try and bridge the gap through distraction. That's where the 14 hours of scrolling and 10 hours of streaming is helpful until it's, until it's not. Here's what you could do. You could hate yourself hypercritical of you to to where you, you don't even see the good God has done in you. All you see is the gap. And you know what all that is? Wise in my own eyes. Trusting my own mind. Leaning on my own understanding. It's foolish. Or here's what you could do. You can ask God for wisdom. 
because it's into the gap that God speaks this invitation. It uses that language, if any of you lacks. Like if you see the distance between who you are and who you wish you were, if there's an empty space in your life, wisdom can fill it. God's wisdom that offers grace and truth, ask for it. The scariest place to be in this life is I have it all together, I don't lack anything, there are no gaps in my life, the one who misses wisdom harms himself. The most hopeful place you can be, I lack the wisdom I need. And if you go looking for it, there's a promise from God, you will find it, and all who find me find life. Here's the good news. We need wisdom, God gives wisdom. It says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. God gives generously to all without reproach. Not only does God give wisdom, he gives it generously. When Jesus, James's brother, talks about this in Matthew 7, he says God gives when we ask like a father who loves giving his children good things. There are things my kids ask for that I have to think about before I answer. Uh, I'm undecided about them. So dad, can we have friends over? I have to think about that. Depends on what we have going on. Dad, can we rent a movie tonight? It just depends on the movie. There are things my kids ask for that are a no or, or a not right now because we've already decided no or not right now. Dad, can we get another dog? No, your mom barely likes the one that we have, right? Uh, dad, can I have a cell phone? Not right now. You are a few years away from that at least. Then there are things my kids ask for that I don't even have to think about. It's an automatic yes because what they're asking for is something I have already decided I want them to have. Dad, can I have a hug? Yes. I I have more affection for you, child, than what you can stand, right? Dad, can we get Chipotle? Yes. (laughs) Always yes. It's just so good, right? Uh, Dad, will you pray for me? Oh, I've I've been praying for you since before you were born. Nobody's gonna pray for you more than mom and dad. Yes. There are some requests that my children make that are so in tune with my heart for them that when they ask, I give generously because my heart already wanted them to have it before they even asked for it. That is how God gives wisdom. He wants you, his heart has already decided, I want this for him. So when you ask, he gives generously. The way Jesus says it is, if evil fathers know how to give good things to their kids, how much more will your heavenly father give when you ask for the things that God's fatherly heart already wants you to have? To all. He gives generously only to mature Christians. No. He gives generously only to people who only need a little bit of wisdom. He gives generously only to people who have a really clean past. No. He gives generously to all who ask without reproach. It means without scolding or criticizing. He doesn't fold his arms and say, you should have asked earlier. He doesn't scoff and say, well, you should already be wise. Remember, this letter is written to Christians. Christians are those who exist in an unconditional covenant relationship with God through Jesus. God loves them. God loves us, wants good for us. Any and all reproach has been absorbed by our Savior in his death for us on the cross, his victorious resurrection. So God has already, in and through Jesus, bridged the gap between God and us, and it is his good pleasure to fill the gaps of our life with his wisdom that we might live wisely in his world. So God is not surprised, annoyed, 
angry, when we need wisdom, when we ask, he gives generously to all and he is delighted to give it. We need wisdom. God gives wisdom. Ask in faith. Verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Well, that took a turn, didn't it? I was feeling really good, and that sounds sad. Ask in faith with no doubting. The doubting person is double-minded and won't receive anything. Here's my experience reading this passage. I know I lack wisdom. I believe God gives wisdom. But I've also struggled with a kind of doubt my entire life. There are seasons of my life where the doubt has been so crippling, it's just paralyzed my relationship with God. I feel like I couldn't pray, couldn't sing. Sometimes it's intellectual doubt. So even, even still, not often, but sometimes I'll be driving here on a Sunday morning and out of nowhere I'll just think, do I even believe any of this? Do I, do I believe what we're gonna sing? Do I believe what I'm gonna preach? Other times it's, it's, do I really believe that God loves me? Like, am I really a Christian? Does God actually love me? And it ebbs and flows. But look, I, don't, I, I read this first. I don't think I could say all of my prayers are completely free of that kind of doubt. So do I miss wisdom? Am I the wave? And then other places in scripture seem to take a different approach to doubt. Jesus welcomes his disciples' questions. I, I've been reading as, a, as a, like the Bible reading plan. I've been reading through the gospels. And it's just over and again, they don't get it. And Jesus stops and explains it. And then they don't get it. And Jesus stops and explains, and then they don't get it. And it's just this cycle of them not understanding. And Jesus makes room for their questions. Thomas, after the resurrection, he's like, the only way to overcome this doubt is if I can see. And Jesus, well, here's the scars. Jesus ministers to him in his doubt. Psalm 73 is a prayer about a crisis of faith. There's a doubt in the psalmist's heart. And he's not only honest about it, but he's talking to God about it. And it makes it into our Bible. Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. So which is it? Uh, Is there space for doubt? Mercy even. Or is the one who doubts driven and tossed by the wind unstable in all their ways? James uses a word. It's the first time this Greek word appears in any Greek literature. Likely James created it. It's the word translated double-minded in verse eight, and it literally means two-souled. You are a two-souled person, unstable in all your ways. And it describes somebody whose loyalties are so divided, it's as if they are two different people. There's a duality of selves that exists in them. So it's not talking about the kind of doubt that asks honest questions, the doubt that wonders, does God really love me? The doubt that says, this is kind of hard to understand, I need some help. In my experience, friends, that kind of doubt is evidence of faith. The person who struggles with, does God really love me? People who don't care about God don't care about that question. So the doubt is actually evidence that the thing you are afraid you don't have is actually present in your life. That's not what James means. This this isn't, uh, hey, keep your questions to yourself and just muster up some more faith. He's saying, if you ask for wisdom, but you're not sure you want it, you're not sure God actually has it, and in a moment you might go somewhere else for it, It's as if you have two souls. Your loyalties are divided. Here's how Sam Alberry describes it in his commentary. The doubter is someone who wants to hedge their bets two ways. 
They'll ask God for wisdom, but they'll also look over their shoulder to see if anyone else has anything better on offer. They'll check out what the Bible says, but they'll also check out what the wisdom of the world says. They don't believe God's ways will necessarily and always be the best ways. They are double-minded, trying to live in more than one direction at once. James gives us an image for that. You know what that's like? That's like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Where's the wave going? Everywhere. It's being driven everywhere by the wind. And to go everywhere is to go nowhere. There's a kind, the doubt that James is talking about, there's a kind of spiritual indecision, a kind of duality of selves where I kind of want God's wisdom, but I kind of want to hear what everyone else has to say and and keep my options open with the biggest questions of life. And that life will always be looking but never finding, moving in every direction, never changing, never going anywhere. So it's not saying have perfect faith. It's not even saying have super strong faith. It's saying you can't have two different objects of faith. One sold faith, sincere faith, says I have found in Jesus something that's weightier than the wind. And I am anchoring my life there. Of all that I might be confused about, undecided about, what I am sure of is that God and God alone has the wisdom I need. God and God alone can fill the gaps of my life and make me who I'm meant to be. So I have anchored my life there and I'm not tossed around because the anchor in Jesus weighs more than the wind. The doubter in Psalm 73 says it like this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I'm not done asking, and I'm not done struggling, and I've not yet arrived, but I'm no longer looking everywhere else for what I can only find in God. And and my faith may not be strong, my faith might be confused, my faith might need a lot of help, but my faith only has one object. It's Father, Son, and Spirit, Almighty God, who was and is and is to come. And even if my faith is weak, it is undividedly anchored in my strong God. Okay. We need wisdom. We lack the resources we need to live well in this world. Whatever it is facing us. God gives wisdom. He gives it generously. He's already decided to fill the gaps of our life with his wisdom. And it's for all. He doesn't criticize or scold. He is delighted that we ask. Ask in faith. Not the kind of faith that's perfect or free of questions or confusion, but the kind of faith that has as its only object a kind, strong, wisdom-giving God. And you know what will happen if we do this. You know what will happen if we believe this? Jesus will have our attention beyond today. He will have our attention beyond this hour of the week. Look, if we're people who just need a little bit of advice to make life work, look, if all we need from God is afterlife assurance, teach me to pray the prayer so I can go to heaven. If I'm wise in my own eyes, confident in my own understanding, then yeah, a few hours of church a week might be just fine. But if I have come to the end of myself... I know I've been saved by this God to know this God and be changed by the wisdom I can only get from this God. Oh, that's a moment by moment, all of life kind of thing. And what falls into place after that is reorienting my time and days and weeks and activities around that need for God's wisdom. Christian, that's what you've been invited into. You've been saved by Jesus, forgiven, delighted. You've been saved 
for so much more than just a Christian activity an hour or so a week. You have been saved into an everyday, all of life journey with Jesus, seeking his wisdom for your life that you need and that he is so eager to give. Let us together ask him for it. Do you pray? I'd love to invite you, friends, brother, sister. I'd love to invite you to accept the invitation. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him and her ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. So could we do this? Just assume a posture of prayer, friend. Maybe you'd identify some sort of gap in your life. The me that you are. The me that your life needs you to be. And, and if you're like me, you'd say, oh wow, there's a lot. Okay, pick one. And just ask God for wisdom. I don't think it ends here. I think that seeking God's wisdom means community and it means reading and it means asking and it, it means a lot of things. I don't think it ends here, but I do think it starts here. Ask God for the wisdom you need. The character, the knowledge, the maturity. God, I need the wisdom required to persevere in suffering. God, I need the wisdom required to be a good and godly dad, a good and godly mom. I need the wisdom required to navigate this relationship that's hurting, confusing. And then would you tell God, God, you give wisdom generously. You're just saying back to God what he's already revealed about himself in his word. God, you give wisdom generously. You're not angry at me for asking. (laughs) And then would you tell God, I'm not asking anyone else. I'm not too sold in my request. I might have questions. I, I, I might have a lot to work through, but, but I have only one object to this faith, weak or strong. God, we need you. I hope I'm not wrong. <laughs> God. But I do believe the need of the moment is for a growing hunger in the hearts 
of your sons and daughters for your wisdom to heal and make whole and make wise because that's who you are Jesus (laughs) wisdom's person gracious and kind and faithful we love you we need you amen